Welcome to episode 150 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with Sacrament trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to sycamore.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us in Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. Our sponsor this week is PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Army veteran Richard Fierro. Rich was the Army ROTC Distinguished Military Graduate in 1999 at San Diego State University and served for 15 years in the United States Army as a field artillery officer serving in both Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2018, he and his wife Jess founded Atrevita Beer Company, where they've won numerous civic and industry awards. At Atrevita Beer Co., Jess and Rich have purposely focused on diversity as a value, even branding merchandise with the phrase, diversity, it's on tap. While Rich's story and post-military life would be sufficient to highlight for an episode of this podcast, it was his actions on November 19th and 20th, 2022, that have brought him notoriety. On that night, Rich, his family, and some friends were attending a celebration at Club Q, an LGBTQ plus nightclub in Colorado Springs, Colorado. About 10 minutes before midnight on November 19th, a gunman walked into the club and started shooting. Within minutes, Rich charged across the room and tackled the gunman, subdued him, and with two other patrons, helped disarm the gunman and restrain him until authorities arrived. That night came a personal loss to Rich and his family. His daughter's boyfriend, Raymond Vance, and her best friend, Daniel Aston, were killed in the attack, along with Kelly Loving, Ashley Paw, and Derek Rump. Twenty-five others were injured, including his wife and daughter. The perpetrator pled guilty to the attack and was sentenced to five consecutive terms of life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 2,211 years. Of course, this conversation includes discussions of violence and deep personal loss, as well as extraordinary acts of sacrifice. We hope that you're able to engage in this content in a manner that's safe to you. Let's get into my conversation with Rich and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Rich, thank you so much for joining me on the show to talk about your experiences. I'm excited to share your story with the audience, both your military journey and your journey as an entrepreneur, your commitment to promoting equity and diversity in, in our community. Before we get into that, I'd like to provide you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. End of the day for me, I'm a, I'm just a regular guy, man. I, I had a kid when I was 16 with my now wife. We were, we've been dating since we were 14. So that all American story, you meet that young and it just continued on for 32 years. So we've done well as a couple and we've gone through a lot of trauma and stuff like that as we've gone through life. But I didn't think I was going to go to college or any of that stuff, but it all happened because the recruiter decided that, hey, dude, you got good grades? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, here's, a, here's an application to West Point. And that ended up taking me to a different path, right? He's, I'm 16, I'm, I'm, I'm 17, I got a kid, and I was really expecting to have to go to work just like my dad is a carpenter and just start busting it out. But it, it worked out a little different and did the ROTC thing for four years with my kid because... West Point, you can't have a dependent and me and, the, me and my wife now, but we were still just boyfriend and girlfriend. We, I just couldn't sign off everything and, and walk away. Yeah. So we stayed in San Diego, finished college, and then we got married and 
took off in the army when it was still zero defect army. It was 99. People were still hanging out. Okay, I'm doing my four years and go to college. That's how you do it. And then in 2001 with 9-11, it changed everything. I was just a young lieutenant trying to do my thing. I, I always tend to say, you know, like you just you felt invincible at that point. And I, and I thought I was, I'll be honest. At that point, I had two kids. I had my, my wife and, and we just kept moving through the, the army and, and we felt a different commitment. It changed us as a family to have to start going to war and, and all the experiences these vets have. They understand the complexities that come with it. And most of us don't make it through as a couple or as, as a family because I, I had friends that would just shake hands with their wife because their wife's like, can't do this no more, but they wanted to retire. So they stayed in and they shook hands and walked away. There was no animosity. There was no cheating. There was no, it was just, you know, and nobody expected when they came in that this was going to be what it was. And and so for eight years or almost 10 years, I, I was in and out of the field and in and out of deployments and I wasn't really around for my family. So that that's part of the reason why I stopped early before retirement. But at the end of the day, that's, it's what it is. I, I, I feel like there's a cost benefit analysis and, and a check is a check. For me, it's about family and values and sticking to them. And, and I think across my career, I, I really made an effort to work with the, the kids around me because they looked like me. My soldiers all look like me. My the officers I worked with are great, amazing people, but they didn't look like me. And so for the kids, it was different to see somebody like me standing in front of that formation with that bar on or the, the captain's rank or major. And it, it, it I knew it meant something to them. And I also knew that I had to perform to a level where I could feel comfortable that I'm representing both the officer corps and, and myself in the army in a proper way. But it allowed me to open my eyes to different cultures, different communities. Everybody in the army knows <laughs> you meet the kid from California and they meet the first time a kid from New York that never drove. And you're looking at them like, what are you doing? Where, where, how can you survive? Yeah, that was my gig for all this diversity stuff. When I grew up in, in uh, San Diego, Mira Mesa is a very diverse town. It's commonly referred to as Manila Mesa because it's a, a Filipino area and uh, the Navy base is right there. So it's got a lot of movement in and out. And so I've always grew up with everything around me and I never really looked at, I'm a part of this group or this group is what's better than the other group. We all just, I, I told somebody one time, we, we looked like the United Colors of Benetton and you looked at my group of friends, it was just everything. We we're all dressed the same, but we all looked totally different. It was a lot of fun coming up. And then I, I used that when I got into to the army. And I learned I never had grits till I got in the army. I never had collard greens. I just got exposed to different stuff. And for me, that's an experience that you can't, it changes you forever. It makes you want to be part of everybody's, just to share in, in their culture. And it's hilarious because everybody thinks we all have the same. We're all Americans, but we all have different cultures and traditions and customs and foods and even name it. And I just wanted to experience it. And so we really jumped in all the way and we really have taken care of as many folks as we can. And, and so when we started our business, we wanted to lead our business. My wife uh, made it a point that she wanted to lead it with who we are and, and diversity and, and making sure that everybody felt welcome was what we did. And that was pretty prior to the shooting that you probably mentioned in the bio, I would assume, but that was our thing. We, we just continue to do what we be real, real authentic. And then folks can make a decision from there, whether they want to participate or, or not, but we don't shove culture down anybody's throat. We like to share. And at that point you make your own decision, what you want to do. I, hearing that, I always find it interesting when I talk to vets, like you, I did, my career did straddle pre 9-11, post 9-11. Yeah. And you joined and the idea of conflict, that was it. In the, in the late 90s, war wasn't on folks' minds, no. right? 
And then 2001 happened and then the entire world changed. Your world changed, my world changed, all the deployments and things like that. But then you said that you decided for the family's sake or, or what have you that you got out. But that was a pretty heavy eight to 10 years yeah. right there. I had, that was, this wasn't like serving in the eighties, not to say that there wasn't, the military is an inherently dangerous job, yes. but serving in the early two thousands is as much as worth a career just because of all of the stress and, and even the traumatic. And, and I'll be honest, it's, and a lot of folks don't really think about it, but it was the unknown. We assumed that this war, all these wars would have lasted 15 minutes Desert Storm did. So we're in, right. we're out. I was in school when they kicked off Iraq and my instructors left because they were worried they, they weren't going to get their combat patch. They were just people volunteering to go do whatever just to, to serve for the 10 minutes we were invading. And then it turned into a 20, 10 year deal. And then you started looking around for the guys without a patch that are hiding. And you're like, what's the deal? Like, we, I, I've never, I, I was in a was in a force company my whole career, so I never got those teaching jobs or any of this stuff. I went from unit to unit, and I feel like that was what I signed up for. You want to serve and, and protect your, your country so your kids don't have to. And so for me, that was huge once it started. But when it started, it was so unknown, man. We, we went into this thinking everything, all hell's breaking loose. We're going to war tomorrow. I remember after 9-11, the next day for PT, the colonel stood up. We had a brigade formation, and he's on the top of the platform for PT. And he's just riling us up, ready to deploy tomorrow. We're the first striker brigade, 96 hours we're going, and we still didn't even have trucks. Like, we just did an infantry brigade at that point. So it's, it, was, it was wild, but that unknowing, I think, led to a lot of, oh, wait a minute, this means I have to deploy every other year. And then I had friends that, hell, I went back after, I got 365. But I had friends that came out, and nobody even realized that this, the regulation was like, if you were back for 30 days, you can be redeployed. So he, one of my warrants got, came back with me uh, from OF1, and then they got orders to go to Afghanistan 45 days later. And we're like, what the, where did this come from? We're supposed to be, I'm, I just got back. But by, at that point, that was the regulation, and it finally changed. I think it's six months now, or maybe it's even a year now. But 30 days later, you turn around and go back. And that was it was a shock to the system, especially for families. Everybody's just like, wait a minute here. What am I doing? It's just crazy. He's a warrant. So he's already done 20 years. And all of a sudden he's turning around for two years and not home. Um, so the, those stressors, I think, really set you up for a, a whole lot of different stuff that folks don't really pay attention to. The combat piece, I think, is what we can relate to with the, the previous vets, the Vietnam mm -hmm. guys. I'm talking to my dad. It's different, man. He was drafted. He showed up. He did his year. He came back. And then I was it, like it was done. And I'm like, no, no, I'm going on my fourth tour. Like, I'll see you again. I'll give you a call when I get back. And it's, it's just a, a totally different mentality for us. And I think it, it created a lot of bonds where um, we all do reach out for each other when we need it. I think our community as vets, I, I, I would hope that we continue with what we learned while we were in, that the value of the folks around you is in their skills and in their performance and in their heart and not in what they show or what flag they're waving. Like, that's not what I signed up for. I, I signed up to be part of a team that regardless, if you got a skill set, we're going to use it, we're going to execute, and we're going to get the mission done. And, and I think that's where we are losing that as that's when we come out is we forget about that. And I think that's what I, I appreciate about you and your story, what I know of it, you and your wife, Jess. And you shared a little bit about it just now 
about how your lived experience, maybe being one of only or one of a few in a room full of officers, yeah. a Hispanic man, mm -hmm. and you talking about some of those experiences and carrying that into post-military life, there is an overlap there between what you experienced in the military and you talked about it and how you and Jess both choose, like you said, to really focus on yeah. that in your entrepreneur journey. No, like for us, it's about leaning in and showing up. My daughter, my son, I, I look at this next generation and I know a lot of folks are like, oh, they're soft or this. I go, dude, they got access to stuff we had no clue about when we were their age. And so my daughter and my son have a mentality of like human, they don't, they just don't see anything as team sport. They see everything as what's the value of that? What's the value of this? And it's very, to me, it's very militaristic because it's how do I build the best team around me? Regardless of what they look like, how do I build the best team? And if that's what I want to do, or if I want to go solo, then, you know, what skill sets can I use from other folks to help me get there? That's what I'm seeing. And for us as old guys, we depended on everybody. Like you had to go to the library and ask a librarian for a book. And if that book was the book she selected, that's what you read and you turned in a report. There was no Google. There was no none of that other stuff. And so that helps them kind of progress. I think for us, it was leaning in as a business to make sure people knew that we are not. And we've, we had all the questions. We had folks come in and go, hey, are we allowed in? Is this a Latino-only place? And I'm, no, bro, this is diversity. Like, we're inclusive. It's about bringing everyone together. Don't you remember what you learned when you were in the Army? Like, I literally taught courses. You guys had guys that did this stuff. And half of them were probably EO reps. You, you think about it. Everybody mm -hmm. was doing it. And so I know it was corny and cheesy, but that's the Army. And they're, they've gotten past it. That's, I said that the, the day after the shooting. And I was like, hey. The army got past it. We need to get past it too. The LGBTQ community crosses all walks of life. And that's the one thing I think that we just can't understand is that community is built on love. And that love transcends culture. It transcends color, sex, whatever you want to call it. They really are as open as you can possibly get. And I think that's a little scary for folks because for most of us, we're closed off. We don't want to talk about stuff. And they, they still have to carry with them whatever culture they have and then go into another community that's being either marginalized or celebrated, one of the two, right? I just felt like that community really needed us to show up. And so we showed up since we opened. We're like, hey, we're going to the Pride Parade. We're the only brewery at the Pride Parade the first year in 2018 when we did it. Still the only brewery that goes to it every year. <laughs> but all the other breweries are now doing stickers and they're having like celebrations at the brewery. So they're realizing that it's not something you can just wait, push aside. This is a community that crosses everybody. And it's amazing the amount of moms and dads in their 80s that come up to me at the brewery and they're like, my son's gay. And I and, you know, really had a hard time with it. But knowing that there's somebody out there that'll help them when they need it, that's, that, that makes them feel better. And I said, he may have helped me. Like, that's the whole point of this thing is we're all out there for each other in our community. And, and at that point, as soon as the first round was fired, it was all of us, we all became family. Yeah. And I think that is, again, one of the things that inspires me is you showed up that day already focused on that. Like it was a community there. And so for those who may not be familiar with what happened, I did mention it in the bio, but a uh, little bit more, you and your family were celebrating a friend's birthday at Club yeah. Q, a local LGBTQ plus club in November of 22, the gunman entered, you and others immediately intervened subdued the gunman, but you and your family experienced a personal loss. And we as a mm -hmm. community lost five of our mm -hmm. neighbors. I'm curious about, you've already started talking about it a little bit. 
how your commitment to honoring and respecting diversity not just led you to do what you did that night, but even be there in the first Yeah, place. so it's crazy because Wyatt, my daughter met Wyatt. It was the first friend she made here in, in Colorado Springs, the second grade. And, and for a military kid, and she's only seven, like that's a big deal. So she met Wyatt. They became fast friends. Wyatt's mom is a first responder, an EMT, and his dad is a firefighter. Like service is, is all about it around him. And so he understood what Cassie was going through, I guess. And they both grew up together in, in the same classes. And her and Cassie were best friends. And Wyatt came out when he was a younger man. And it was hard for him with his family. It was hard for him with his community. It was hard for him with school. But Cass was like, he's my friend. I'm sticking with him. And we were like, let's do it. So we, he'd come to the house in drag to pick up Cass to go to whatever he wanted to go to. But he, when he was in drag, Wyatt, when he still does, but when he's in drag, that kid is unreal. His personality, I'm, I keep telling him like, dude, you gotta be on TV, man. You're amazing. And so this kid is somebody we love and we care for. So it was his birthday. Cassie wanted us to go see him perform. It would have been, it was my first time going to see him perform. Then he was hosting this event and his boyfriend was there too. And Daniel had saying happy birthday and gave him a cake 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour before Daniel was killed. My daughter lost her boyfriend. So her and Wyatt both lost the person, their significant other, a, a real hard move, right? Like I, I still, I'm blown away by my kid because I, I can't fathom how that would have been for me at 22 losing Jess and she's in the same boat. So for us, it was a, it was a very, very deep thing, but look, it, you just look at our table. So Raymond's black. My daughter, my wife, and myself, Hispanic, veterans, Latinas, Latino. And then we had our best friends there, Chip and Joanne. And Chip's a white dude, and he's married to a, a Dominican lady. So Joanne and Chip are our best friends. Our whole community was right there in that room. And like I said, our table reflects who we are. And it's mixed, and it doesn't matter, right? That's not what we're looking at. It's not how I identify people. I, I identify people as good or bad. And that's where we sit as family. That's literally why we were there to support family, wherever that. Is. And I think, and I think there's that, uh, the contrast between why you were there and why the gunman went there. And again, so you were there for the right reasons. And for many, and, and I've heard you speak before, but really it's what we do as veterans. We protect those that we care yeah. about and the actions that you and the others uh, did that night. What a lot of people don't know is in the, so we didn't have a full trial. This guy pled guilty. But they did identify, he showed up there about 10, 1030 that night. And he took a look around before he came back at mid or 11, 1150 or whatever it was to do what he did. So this guy, he scoped us out and he knew what he was doing. There's no doubt about that. Left his ID card in the parking lot because he knew, hey, I'm, and he had a frag on, like some kind of frag device on his chest. And I'm like, this guy wanted to take us everybody out that he could. And we were hopefully we were able to me, Thomas James and Drea come together and, and, and to take, keep this guy from killing more. We lost five. So I, I and there's nothing heroic about it. There's, and I, I just did a, a speech with the UCCS, my, my alma mater, they had me do commencement and I, and I talked about heroism, right. And how everybody looks outside for a hero. And I'm like, dude. Heroism is defined by doing something that's unexpected, completely out of the norm and a random unexpected point. That was all of us. I look at my daughter in the back praying with random strangers and they were praying to make sure, and they didn't know if this guy was going to come in there and kill a ball. My, my daughter said, leave me, my knee's broken. You guys run if he comes in. And my wife's covering somebody in, their, in the patio 
And then she's consoling somebody who's dying. And she has no idea who they are, but she was their mother for that last moment of their life. Those are the things that are heroic to me. My friend keeping the, the pressure on his wife's wounds and keeping her alive. She was shot five times, almost died. And, and he's, he was on his knees that were both shot, keeping pressure until I was able to get over there and, and take over for him. But those are heroic things. When somebody hides or runs or calls 911, their human body is, it responds differently to fire. And I think most vets understand this because you'll be in a formation and, and the first time you hear the ping or that whiz over your head, the guys next to you either cower or they figure it out real quick. And some of the guys you expected to be studs were not. So that's where you kind of have to go. The human body will respond how it wants to respond for you. And so I don't ever, if somebody asked me, you know, would you wish that everybody in there would have jumped on this guy? And I said, no, because I don't want to live in that world. I want to live in a world where somebody else will call 911. Somebody else will run out and try and get help. Somebody else will, will be praying for all of us. Like those are the things that I want in my world and the fighting part we'll deal with. And there'll be somebody that'll do it, but I don't want to live in a world where all of us are prepared for something like this. We, we need to do some hard work to, to solve those things. Yeah, I, I think the story, and as you and I, and, and it was interesting, we met in Seattle. Yeah. We're both from Colorado Springs. I was very clear. We had to go to Seattle to connect. But you're absolutely right. It was something that impacted our community, like many of these mm -hmm. have, like Uvalde connected, impacted their community, but also impacted people nationally. But it was a snapshot in time of an action that you and the others took but again, I, I see it and have seen it. And even this conversation here, it, it was a culmination. It was a moment in time of the entire spectrum of what you're doing, mm -hmm. why you were there and what you did were based on your respect and honoring of all of us. And I think I just, you've heard it many times, I'm sure from many people, the appreciation for what you did, but not just what you did, but also for who you and Jess and your family are to really continue on this work. And that's all we can hope for. And there's a lot of folks that ask me, you know, what should we do with guns? What should we do with hate? You'd pick your topic. And I'm like, listen, I'm not an army officer. I'm not allowed to be political. And I live with that because to me, that's, it's better to hear everybody's opinions and not really force mine on anyone else. And so I tend to do that. I'll have conversations with folks that, that completely disagree with me, but I want to hear what they think. Uh, I want to know and let them voice their opinions so that I can make a more educated you know, decision on how I want to act. Us as a family have made it a thing to really reach out and be friendly. I, I think the solving of all this is folks shaking hands again and folks saying hello at the, the supermarket. The vet that's, a, that's sitting on the, on the side of the, the road there looking a little tired and haggard and maybe he's experienced homelessness. He needs a hello. He needs a salute and hey, grab your, we can help you get something and make the effort and, and, or just show up. I, I thought it was amazing for the Springs. We have a pride parade every year and it's usually about three or 4,000 people. But this last one, there was like 15,000 is what they counted. And I'm like, that's folks that are in our community that realized, you know what? It's not about who's right or who's wrong. This is about Colorado Springs and us as a group, as a community, not letting this kind of hatred and anger define us. You know, everybody showed up and that mattered. It, you didn't have to hang, you know, hang out with anybody or even shake a hand, but you showed up. And, and I think that's the first step. And, and that's what my wife is always stressed. And that's why we do what we do with the brewery is to show up for those that we want to open the door and, and have some discussions and maybe share some things. And that's it. I think that's amazing. 
So if folks wanted to find out more about the work that you and Jess are doing, the website for the brewery, not that you need more, you can always more, more people at the table having these, these discussions yeah. is good. But how can folks find out what you're doing with the, uh, with the business? If you Google Atrevida Beer Company, you will find a million things. And, and that's our handle, Atrevida Beer Co. And that's our website. It, anything you do with you Google it, you can Google my name and it'll go back. It'll circle you around Atrevida and with my wife as well. And she's, listen, she's the one that was on TV. She was a, she was on Beerland back in 2017 and she won that first season. And so she's a, I always tell her, you're a reality star. I'm just a, I'm just the husband, the real husband of Colorado Springs. I just, the guy that hangs out. She's got this thing down and what she's doing is really amazing. We're really excited about next year. She's got her new brew house coming in and she's going to be in the airport and she's going to start distribution around the area more with, with our local vendors. As we're all still crawling out of COVID and getting people to get back outside. And that's part of why we were out is to make sure people go out. But it wasn't packed on that, that, that evening we were in the shooting because people just have changed their habits. And so we've got to get back to gathering. We had to get back to going to restaurants and bars and breweries and distilleries, you name it. But small business needs to be able to thrive out here. And right now it's a tough gig. Yeah, absolutely. I'll make sure that the links to the website can be in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciated it. And thank you for reaching out. I'm a kind of a, a weird cat because I'm, I'm, I'm loud and I like to get involved in stuff, but I'm also, you know, whatever, just let me know. So I'm glad you followed up and, and this is a great conversation. Absolutely. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. Psychomer offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. As we begin 2024, we're honored to be able to bring you Rich's story. A quick appreciation to our friends at Minority Vets of America and especially their co-founder, Lindsay Church, who you heard back on episode 133. It was at the Minority Veterans Summit this past fall that I met Rich, where he was being recognized for his actions at Club Q. There's so much to dig into after my conversation with Rich. I think the goal for me was to help tell the story behind the story. Everyone focuses on his actions that night, but as you heard in our conversation, it was his and Jess's commitment to inclusion and diversity that had him at the right place at the right time to do the right thing. It was not a moment in time. It was a single act of sacrifice and action in a life dedicated to serving others. You'll notice I didn't use the word hero or heroism in the introduction or during the conversation. Rich brought it up, and by any definition of the word, his actions that night were heroic. But this is a bit of veteran culture. Veterans are uncomfortable with the word hero. Talk to any veteran about their time in combat, for example, and eventually you may hear something like, well, as bad as I had it, at least I wasn't in dot dot dot. Insert a different battle or conflict here. At least I wasn't in the Korangal or in Helmand. Those who were in the Korangal say, well, at least I wasn't in Keating, or those in Helmand may say, at least I wasn't in Fallujah. The fact that someone else had it worse made it mean that those other veterans were more heroic than they were, more worthy of honor and respect. When you talk about heroism, veterans will likely point to someone else, literally like Rich did in our conversation where he pointed to Jess and Cassie's actions that night. This was not just a story about Rich's actions that night, but a family story, a community story. For the patrons of Club Q consider themselves a community and a family. It's the story of the community of Colorado Springs coming together after a horrendous attack and supporting each other. It's a story of love triumphing in the face of hate, and I can't think of a better way to celebrate our 150th episode and kicking off 2024. So I hope you appreciated this conversation with Rich. If you did, we'd appreciate hearing from you. So if you do have some feedback, let us know. 
drop a review in your podcast player of choice, or send us an email at info at We're always glad to hear from listeners, both feedback on the show and suggestions for future guests. For this week's Psychomer Resource of the Week, I'd like to share the Psychomer Podcast episode 99 with Crystal Ellington, where she and I talk about DEI and sexual assault prevention for veterans. This happens to be one of my personally favorite episodes, and I still refer to the insights that Crystal provided me from her perspective as a woman of color, a member of the LGBTQ community, and an Army veteran. What is not known is that Crystal and I had our conversation on the morning of November 19th, and I woke up the next day to the news of what happened in my community. I can think of no better way to honor Rich as well as Crystal than by sharing this episode with you. You can find a link to the episode in our show notes. So thanks again for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in the podcast app, as well as on the Psychomer website at psychomer.org forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can find hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are all committed to educating the non-military community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members, veterans, and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with Psychomer on social media to let us know what you thought about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing and all rights to the show remain reserved by Psycharmor. Much appreciation to the team at Psycharmor that makes this show happen. Carol Turner, Vice President of Strategic Communications, who keeps me on track and is an outstanding guest coordinator, and support and transcript by Emma Atherall. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we request that you do, but make sure to let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.